What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Ultimately, helping other people became my path out of hell. I had chills at that point in the interview you're about to hear, both because of how far Cheryl had come and all she'd been through, and the moving ways the people she volunteered to help ended up changing her life for the better. Throughout our chat, we delved into some pretty dark, heavy, and painful circumstances, and also a lot of light including lessons for anyone who's longing for life as it used to be or feeling pretty isolated because of difficult times. Cheryl Hunter is a best-selling author and resilience expert who provides expert commentary for news sources including Dr. Phil, CNN, NBC News, Dr. Oz, and PBS. Cheryl never set out to be an expert in resilience, but while she was traveling abroad as a teenager, She was kidnapped by two criminals who eventually left her for dead. Cheryl survived this life-changing trauma and used her experience to create an educational framework that empowers people to flourish through adversity. Keep listening after the interview for thoughts from this month's guest expert, dating empowerment coach Erin Tillman. For a listener who wants to start dating again after a long hiatus, One of Erin's ideas for meeting somebody new, I hadn't even heard of. First, my conversation with Cheryl Hunter. So you grew up on a horse ranch in rural Colorado. I wondered if you could share a bit about what you loved about that life. It was a dream in so many ways. I mean, it's funny, rural almost doesn't even apply. Like in some regard, it could have been any century. There were no signs of civilization. I had to sort of crane my head. And if we, if you got up on top of a tree, you could sort of see part of the freeway. <laughs> oh, wow. But sort of, you know, and, and you know, a two lane quote freeway, but way off in the distance. And you can only see it at night because occasionally you see lights, but there were no signs of civilization like a lot of the flyover states, so to speak, are. And that made it heavenly in that there was, we were so far away from people. And my mom, when I was a kid, my, my mom wanted my brother and sister and I to become close. Now, at, at the time, that's what she said. And I sort of, in retrospect, wondered, did she really? Now, I do believe she did, but also, could you imagine like driving, <laughs> driving an hour, hour and a half each way to go play with friends? No, who wants to do that? But she also did want the three of us to become close. So we stayed on the ranch during the summer, during, all the time. I remember lying down in the meadow. I'd just go out there. Cows are quite gentle. We, I was on a horse ranch. We had cattle as well. Not for farming or anything, just because... They're nice. <laughs> they are. I love cows. <laughs> They're so friendly and docile. I would go lie out there in the meadows and look up at the sky and see planes occasionally and think with the mind of a kid, you know, like if I stared hard enough at that plane, I could get sucked up inside of it. And then I'd be the one in that plane looking down at this girl lying among the cow patties in the, on the rough grass of the meadow. And I just, I used to imagine that someday I would be the one in the plane looking at the girl in the meadow who had dreams of getting out, going someplace where there were people that I wasn't related to by blood, that I didn't know. There's something simultaneously magical and challenging about being in a small town where everybody knows you. As a teen, 
our model of the world as a teen is very different. Everybody thinks about you and they're judging you and all this stuff that when you get older, you're like, <laughs> I don't even know that I existed. <laughs> but I was fixated upon people's judgment of me or whatever that sort of kept me stifled and living a particular life rather than the ability to spread my wings and expand and fly and become whoever I chose. And I thought that the anonymity of a city would allow that. I don't know where I concocted the idea, but I became hell-bent on getting to some city where I could invent myself in any way. I can imagine that. I grew up in a, not a small town, but in Minnesota. And when I moved to New York City, I did feel like I had privacy for the first time, really, because no one knew me. No one knew who I had been. No one knew who my family was. And when you're surrounded by so many people, you can be like anonymous, which is trippy. Isn't it funny? It's the paradox of being alone in a crowd. Yes. And so you ended up deciding that modeling could be your vehicle to more, to something more that you had been longing for. I don't know that it was particularly thought through outside of the basics. And I'd, I'd played hooky one day and gone to the local store, which was about, you know, I don't know, an hour away or something like that on my mini bike. Got myself a root beer and a glamour magazine and a pickle, you know, favorite foods. And yes, and I was going to look for career advice. And it was talking about how they were always looking for models. I was on the boys basketball team at the time. And I was like, I'm tall enough you know, what other kind of prerequisite could there be? Can you smile? Okay, I, I smile for long periods of time, oftentimes, <laughs> even unbidden. Can you, <laughs> I don't know, I seem to have all the qualifications. So I thought if I chose some other career, profession, vocation of some kind, my family could object. Well, you could go do that here. But that modeling, what the heck, that was going to be my ticket. <laughs> Which also comes, I think, with that youthful naivete sometimes. We just think, I'm just going to go do it. I'm just going to fly away, which is essentially what you did. Did you do any sort of research into finding contacts before you traveled? I mean, or oh, did you? No. It was just, like I said, I was hell-bent. Like that, I don't know how better to phrase it, but that was what I was going to do. I was going to go to Europe. I was like, where do they have models? Where do they need models? And a friend wanted to go to Europe. And I was like, yeah, I think they, they need them over there. The logic is slightly flawed. But my friend wanted to go to Europe. And I was like, well, they need models there. Yeah, totally. Now, she was perfectly content with coming home afterward. I, on the other hand, no. I had a world to see, you know, anonymity to meet, people to simultaneously meet and have ignore me so I could create myself to be whomever I chose. So I, I had big plans. I didn't tell anybody of these plans because I didn't want to be shut down or, or humiliated for having them. It was just, I was going to find a way once we got there. So your family only knew that you were going on a trip. That's all they knew. <sighs> well, my mom realized that there was no shutting me down. I had said I was going to do it and I was going to. And I was either, she was either going to let me go with her blessing and then advise me, come up with some provisions inside of which I could take the trip, which she did. Uh, or I was just going to go do something even more stupid. <laughs> I go on my own. And she came up with the provision. You can go provided you do two things. One, you never split up from your friend. And two, you stay in regular communication with me. It's not that they didn't pan out. I, who had always been truthful, always honored my word to my parents, my mother, it was sacred, but I didn't. I had something, you know, I was on a mission. I was going to figure out a way to stay in the city if it killed me. Those words feel very profound considering all that happened, would you share what did happen? I know shortly after you arrived, your life changed dramatically. Well, 
we got to France and there was a man with a camera around his neck, you know, a fancy, nice looking camera. And he approached me, asked me if I was a model, told me that he could make me one. And I was like, this is it? This is how easy it is to become a model? He said, all you need to do is come with me and my friend. And there was this man, big man, standing over to the side alone. Now my friend said, oh, no you don't. There's no way. But look, she didn't have the same dream as I did. Plus, we'd been traveling through Europe already a little bit, and she had met some guys who were going to follow us there. I didn't like them. I didn't want anything to do with them. So she went out with them. I ditched her, went off with the man with the camera and his friend. My thought was, we were going to go shoot photos. When are we going to go shoot the photos? And so they met me in this cafe. And the interesting thing was, it was all dark. It was in the middle of the day, but it was dark. Now, at the end of it, we were down in the south of France and there was a, there was a beach and it was light, very light at that end. But the, the cafe, the restaurant was dark in and of itself. Like nobody else was there, but me and the man with the camera and the big man. And they asked me if I wanted wine, Sauvignon Blanc. It sounded all fancy. And I was like, mm, no, I wanted to be sober, you know, for the photos. And they were like, oh, you American. And I, I didn't want to be the, the, you know, quote, the ugly American. So fine. I had some Sauvignon Blanc. The next thing I know, I come to and I'm in a car in the passenger seat with my head kind of hanging out the window like a dog. I'm, my, my mouth is open, my, my drooling, my tongue is out and I see us driving curvy, windy roads going this and that around these bends and I'm like, oh, and that's that, I'm out again. And at the same time, I have to say throughout this whole ordeal, which lasted some time, they took me to a construction site. Again, nobody was there, just abandoned on the cement floor. It was dark. It was like flapping, sound of flapping plastic. And I kept thinking the whole time, when are we going to shoot the photos? When are we going to take the pictures? When? And for whatever reason, they, you know, I mean, for whatever reason, the whole thing, you know, there's no bringing reason to this, but they beat me. They tortured me. They raped me. Why all of it? Why torture somebody? And... I had this impulse. It was not thought through. It was not anything. It just, maybe it was that I was drugged. I don't know. But I started talking. And one of them was just like, and, and just used to kick me. I mean, was, was kicking me when I would stop talking. But I just, I just kept talking. I was talking. Oh, my little brother was having problems in school. And I was talking about how... He's very smart. He was always inventing things. And he used to say, I've got an invention that, you know, like you couldn't get all the ketchup out of the ketchup bottle. And he goes, I've got an invention that would fix this. But he had an invention for everything. You know, you don't want to unsaddle the horses at the end of a ride. Well, I've got an invention. I mean, he's very smart. It's just school wasn't doing it for him, which is not an anomaly. The normal K through 12 just doesn't do it for everybody. But he was, he was failing and he was being held back a grade. But he was brilliant. I know from all of his inventions, as much as I would go, oh, God, shut up. Not another invention. Ah, you know, <laughs> just obnoxiousness to a little brother. But he was good. They were, they were good. And I knew it. But for some reason, I just started talking about it. And I was talking about everybody in the family. I was having this moment to myself where it, it was implausible that I would ever leave. I mean, I'd seen TV movies, you know. Why would they, I, why would they let me go? I saw their faces. It, it, this doesn't, doesn't end well, no matter how I thought it through. But I just kept talking. And I was thinking, like, everything I was thinking, I think I just kept saying aloud. You know how they 
that saying the, your life flashes before your eyes. Literally, I was thinking of all the things I had done wrong. Like, I used to go to the mall with my grandma, like this little small ass town mall. And not in my little town, there was no mall there for God's sakes, but Pueblo, Colorado, I'd go you know, an hour and a half to Pueblo and go, my, go with my mom, my, my grandma to the mall. And my grandma and I would go to the mall and she would want to hold my hand. And I'd be like, ooh. You know, again, back to how you are as a teenager. Everyone's looking at me. Oh my God, the older girls, they're looking at me and I'm holding hands like I'm a five-year-old. I can't hold your hand. And she would try to hold my hand and I would always drop it and let it go and pretend like I was pointing at some damn thing or other are doing something, and, but like I was embarrassed of that and of her. And I was saying, if my grandma ever holds my hand again, I will hold her hand as long as she ever wants. And I was just saying all these things and you know, the big one would just come and kick me and in the head and just like stabbing me and shit. I mean, like, you know, it was just burning me and, but I just wouldn't stop talking. And I didn't at the time go to law enforcement. Ultimately they let me go. They dumped me in a park like a heap of garbage. But later in talking to some people in law enforcement, they were like, oh, well, it was sex trafficking and it just some handoff went awry or something. But, oh, well, well you, you know, talk me through what you did and, oh, well, you humanized yourself to them. And I got to say, I, I'm, I'm, you know, despite the things I'm telling you, I am a smart person despite my lapse in judgment as a teenager on a mission, but I did not think through, oh, you must humanize yourself to the captors. It was, none of that happened. It was just an impulse that I couldn't control, no matter how much they, they punished me for it. It's almost like your instincts were saving you. I mean, literally saving you. Literally, you are a hundred percent right. Wow. I'm so glad that you were able to, to get out of that situation. Did you get support? Did anyone ask you, you know, what, what happened? Why do you have these, these wounds? I mean, frankly, a lot of the wounds were in places where you don't see them. Hmm. You know, your sensitive, most sensitive places on the body. They're scarring there, but nobody, you know, it's not like I show anybody. Right. One thing I wanted to say was they, when they finally dumped me off, pushed me out of the car onto the ground, the guy goes, darling, of all words, <laughs> darling. And I turn my head back and he snaps my photo. Finally, we've shot the photos. Wow. The layers of, of cruelty. From there, were you able to find your friend again? Well, I did, and we left, and she was furious. I mean, I disappeared, and I had a promise that I would not split up with her and all that. So, and we ran and got on a train. I don't know if everybody does this as a teenager, but we had this ridiculous amount of junk we had brought with us. Our suitcases were obscene. We nicknamed them the elephants. <laughs> and it was just, it was, they were obscene. They were huge. And I left most of my stuff in that hotel room. Mm. It's like, who cares? You know, hotel, some crappy pension. Like what matters after that? And did you tell your friend anything about what had happened? No, no. I didn't literally tell anyone, and I mean anyone, for more than a decade. 
Now, what I did do is after the park, I, 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 I didn't know what to do. I, I laid there and played dead. Now, I had just turned my head back and had my photo snap, but I, I laid there and played dead until the car was gone. I heard nothing. I heard nobody. And I got up and I ran into the heart of town. And back in the day, you didn't have a cell phone. You didn't have WhatsApp. You didn't have, you couldn't just call America from the crappy pension. No, you had to go to a post office or an Amex office of all places, like, and have them place a call for you. And that's exactly what I did. And who did you call? My mom. And it was like two in the morning or something like that. And all I say is, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. And I literally got nothing else out. And imagine if you're the mom, how freaked the heck out you would be hearing that. Because there's a reason. The words say, I'm okay. Everything else says, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. I'm not okay. Mm. Now, at most of these places where you had to go make phone calls, because remember, I was promised to be in regular communication, you got your own little phone booth. Not here. There was a bank of phones along a wall, like, like three feet apart, maybe two and a half feet, like not far. And they were just exposed along a wall. Mm, no privacy. None. I'm talking to my mom, and the guy with the camera walks up. He's followed me there. And he leans against the wall, nonchalant, like we're buds, and goes, who are you calling? And I literally just hung up after, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, click. Nothing. That's it. I say nothing else. And I go, oh, couldn't get through. And he says, let's go for a drink. Oh, because you're my friend or something. And I said, sure. I just need to go to the bathroom. I walked out the door. Now it was like this sliding open doors, like this huge opening there. And I walked out and fucking ran for my life. Thank goodness. I ran so fast. My feet were kicking my butt. I had so much kick. I was on the track team and ran cross country. I've never ran so fast in my entire life and ran to this crappy little pension, went upstairs. My friend started shouting and I literally laid on her and held my hand over her mouth and said, don't say anything. Get your stuff. We have to go now, now, now. And we got on the first train. Wow. And literally also at that time, well, I guess maybe this is figuratively, but you, it's like you were on a train away from yourself. You said it took 10 years to talk about this throughout that decade of not telling anyone, obviously the impact of trauma, it can affect so many areas of our our lives. Was it something that you tried to distance yourself from? Was it something you thought about all the time, but, but hid from people? How did, how did you navigate that time? The best I had at the time, like not a whole lot in terms of coping skills, the best I could come up with is pretend it didn't happen. That was the best I had. That's appealing when you've gone through something awful, right? Well, maybe if I could just pretend it didn't happen, I see the the reason there. And I mean, today, here we are in this world, post-COVID-19, with all the unrest going on. And I mean the civil unrest, but the internal, there's collective unrest and individual unrest as well. But I see people in this world where I I hear them saying the things that I would say to myself. Well, when it gets back to normal again, I hate to be the bearer of bad news and have this this foreshadowing of 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 what's to come, but there is no getting back to like it was. When something happens that we didn't want, that we didn't choose, it irrevocably changes life and there is no getting back. And it blows. 
it really does particular when we particularly when we want the the way, things the way they were or maybe they weren't great but they were certainly more tolerable than the current reality with which we're faced and and we just we say i want to get back to like it was before but that's a myth it's a fallacy and i that may sound cruel to say but we have to embrace the new and then create from there something we can hang our hats on something it, it seems implausible that you could find something good out of the horror that's occurred but until you can i've learned there is no moving forward boldly into the new era in which we're living and i didn't do that for so long i just pretended it didn't happen now here we are in the microcosm i'm sitting there in the train with my friend they had cut my hair off and it's like wacky chopped off short like six inches or so you know it just it looks like hell it looks like i've gone through like a, a like a thing that they slice meat on in a deli it's like crazy we don't mention it. We're at that age where you don't say anything. I've got bruises the hell all over me. I've been gone for days. We literally step over it. We're at that age. Wow. That's really intense. That's a heavy burden to, to carry. And I really appreciate what you said about not being able to go back and how much that sucks. And then also how much embracing that I can see that bringing a sense of healing right there because I know that when I've gone through really difficult things or something that's traumatic, when we grieve what what we can't have anymore with this idea that we're going to get it again, it is so self-defeating because you're like stuck in this trap of, I need to go back. I need to go back when really it's, I need to go forward. And what does that look like? So, so well said. If somehow we can benefit from the past, again, as implausible as that sounds, and somehow incorporate it in who we're becoming for the future, we stand a chance. In some regard, I lost a decade because I, I pretended that it never happened and, it, and it, I, it distanced me from the people I loved. There was this elephant in the room now. <laughs> not my suitcase, this elephant in the room that, that was between us. I like, I, 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 I had a falling out with my father and didn't talk to him for a long time, hated him for not protecting me. Again, there's no logic to it. He never even knew it occurred, let alone was he in the same continent, but it was there nonetheless. Now we have a beautiful relationship today, but I, Part of what I ultimately did was I, I knew I wasn't the first one to have been dealt a hand like that. I, I know I wasn't the first one to have faced situation, a situation that I didn't want, didn't choose, wanted to go backward from, but that was an impossibility. And so I started getting very curious about people who had also done that. One of the things I had done, I, I told my mom, I'm, I'm, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, but I didn't ever say why. And she had no context for it. So she told me years later, she thought that I meant I was bored. And she goes, well, if you really are feeling that way, maybe you can help somebody, find somebody who's worse off than you in some regard and help them. I started volunteering at old age homes, you know, boarding care facilities and residential facilities of whatever kind. But there were a lot of people at the time who had survived the Holocaust. And I got fascinated with their stories because there were some who had done beautifully with their lives, but there were some who understandably were bitter and hard and resentful. And again, nobody could ever blame them. And I started getting fascinated with their stories and asking them about them. And they were so thrilled to speak. And I spent all my time there i started finding out you know those who had been who were war survivors holocaust survivors what had they done that worked and then again what had those who had not recovered done and i codified their journey as well as the things i was doing that was working and ultimately i started helping people who were dealing with 
not in the throes of, of current trauma, but dealing with today's impact of yesterday's trauma, the contortion, the compensation, the trying to get back to like it was. But it was ultimately helping other people became my path out of hell. Mm. That is so beautiful. I'm sure that they were seeing you as the person who's coming to help and support them, which you did. And at the same time, the, many of them probably didn't know that you were, you were finding your own kind of therapy there in a way. Yes. And finally, I started telling my story. I was leaving a seminar. I started getting, I thought, well, I'm, I'm loving what I'm doing. Let me actually, and I was taking some personal development programs at the time. And I felt better when I was there. Not so great when I wasn't. It was okay when I was listening to the old people. I say that fondly, the old people, but not so weird when I wasn't, but I, when I was throwing myself into something, I felt better. And so once I finished the entire curriculum and everything you could possibly take in these personal development programs, I didn't want to leave. And I, I started speaking to the people there. Well, what could I do? Well, you could be trained to lead the programs and then you'd be at the source of it. Really. It's if you, if you have to learn something to be at that place for till you can give it away. So I was like, Ooh, that's the ticket. And it trained me how to provide things, how to teach things for other people. Now it was inside of their curricula, but the work that I was learning from those who had recovered from extreme trauma was, it, it, it played into it beautifully. And one night I was leading one of those seminars and we were doing an exercise on forgiveness and there's, you know, a couple few hundred people in the room. And I was doing this exercise on forgiveness and it was kind of hypothetical. Forgiveness, good. Not forgiveness, not so good. It was distanced. It was removed. Because you hadn't yet explored that concept for yourself? I'd explored the heck out of it, but I'd never told anybody about it. So me talking hypothetically about, you know, if one has experienced bad things, one can forgive. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's like all in theory. But it's not practical what does it look like on the court and i th there was a i i was i was there was this interaction going on this woman raised her hand and stood up and said certain things can't be forgiven and people started siding with her and then she started to give more evidence what she had been through and what her children had suffered and it was all understandable. I mean, reprehensible, the darkest of most vile stuff of humanity. And in one regard, I could have agreed with her. And yet what I was learning, not only what was in the manual, uh -huh. <laughs> but what I was learning in my own journey, as well as, like I'd said, speaking with the survivors from them was that forgiveness makes every bit of difference. Mm. And so I just kept standing there. No, forgiveness makes a difference. And the room was starting to turn. Somebody stood up and slammed their stuff down and they're like, you just don't get it. And people are leaving the room and this woman is sobbing and everybody's siding with her. And I thought, I'm actually going to lose the room if I don't do something. And I had this moment with myself, like you are no longer a teenager who is afraid of being hunted down and killed and tortured again or whatever. You are not a child any longer. You are a grown woman. How long are you going to hold this inside? And I, all that just flashed through my mind quickly. And I said, let me make this real. And it was the first time I'd ever said anything. Now these people had been with me for a while. And you could have heard a pin drop. All the milling around stopped, people standing at the back of the room, getting ready to walk out, all that stopped. But more importantly, this woman actually recognized that it was true, that forgiveness wasn't about setting those bastards free. It was about setting you free. Wow. I think we can embrace the concept of that. And sometimes when you hear that, it's like, well, how do I do it? Was it all that mental shift that did it when you started to focus on, oh, it's about freedom for me? Or did you actually have to take certain steps? Because I feel like a lot of people want to forgive and they feel almost like they can't. I think you're right. I think we so often have forgiveness 
collapsed with condoning what occurred. And it doesn't mean that. A lot of my fundamental understandings of forgiveness came from these war vets, these Holocaust survivors, those who had forgiven and had moved on with their lives and had these rich, fruitful lives. And I could see clear as day, it was the end of the line for them. The ones who hadn't forgiven versus the ones who had. It was unmistakable, August. There wasn't, it was, it was night and day, the trajectory of a life where there's peace and the one where there is not. There is still resentment and holding on to and trying to punish the bad guys. But invariably we get punished and I was them. I, I used to silently plot my revenge against those men, those beasts. I would spend all my time trying to figure out how I would get back there, what I would do to them when I did, who I was going to bring with me. And I heard this talk. There was this, this woman, Anna, who was a sculptor. And she had the most beautiful way of speaking. And she would talk about the chains that bind. And those were the chains that tethered us to the past and tethered us to our pain and tethered us to those people. And that if we looked, we were the jailer. We were the ones with the keys. Mm. That's powerful. And opening those up and, and letting go of the chains didn't mean that it was okay. But it meant that I'm no longer willing to suffer. And I also learned from another one of them, why did they do what they did? And like the, the, the opportunity that, that created construct of standing in their shoes. Well, why would they do this? Okay. So money probably, but what the hell happened to someone who does this? What has somebody gone through who takes a lit cigarette and burns somebody? Who cuts somebody? Who rapes somebody while they're lying in a pool of their own urine? Who does something that reprehensible? What on earth were they subjected to? And that bit right there gave me enough objectivity to go, oh, something. They went through something. And I don't condone what they did. I don't think it's acceptable. It is unacceptable. But that, it's like you're in it and then suddenly you step back in that witness state where you can go, okay. That happened to me. I am not that. Hmm. Forever, I thought, I am ruined. I am filthy. I am disfigured in whatever way, internally, externally, whatever that means. But that, that objectivity that the forgiveness provided afforded me the opportunity to see I have those experiences. I am not those experiences. Hmm. Yes, that's such an important distinction because the opposite of that fosters shame. If there's something wrong with me, if I cause this, that's really huge. And that you were able to have some level of empathy for the attackers. And again, not to condone it, but to say that doesn't, people are not born that way. People are not born to do that to somebody. I think that's really important because otherwise we also don't break the cycle if we don't ask those questions. And, and try to prevent these traumas. Would you share a bit about your advocacy that you do now? I know you also have a podcast. You do a lot of speaking. You're going to be appearing on Dr. Phil. Would you share a little bit about, you were talking about turning what happened to you into something that's purposeful, and you do that in so many ways. Which pieces would you like to share about? Thank you so much. 
I took the things I learned from working with survivors. And then, like I said, codified my own journey. And I taught that for a time. I had helped people overcome trauma for a time, but after quite some time, it had ultimately become traumatizing for me to a certain extent. I mean, there was a triumph always at the end, but it, it was too much. And once I started sharing my story, I realized that it was my duty to do that because I could see the transformation that occurred in that room in the seminar that night. And I knew that was possible for people on a larger scale. So I got asked not long after that to do a documentary film and tell my story and then uh, a TED talk. And I've done several of them since, but each time people would come up afterward, I started doing a lot of public speaking and, and the news and things like this, but each time people would speak to me afterward and say, you know, I've never told anyone this, but invariably their stories would start with that. I've never said a word to anybody. And here's what happened. And now I feel like I can say something. I've recognized along the line that there are a lot of people like me who have a story on their heart that they want to share. And so I first started telling those stories. I, start, I created a, a docu-series and later a podcast called Rise. And it's about people rising up and overcoming. And I was just deeply grateful. CNN's headline news, Michaela Pereira, I don't know if you know her, she, she featured it. And these beautiful stories of people going through real adversity, real huge challenges. And we did it years ago. And this was the first start of Rise. But people going through massive adversity and emerging brighter on the other side and going on to pay it forward in some way. And I've gone on just so blessed to share those stories with people. But I've, I've recognized that there are so many people who also have a message deep in their heart that they want to use to change life on this planet. And so now I've put together a team and that's exactly what we do. A, a publicist that people would never normally get unless they were famous and a Hollywood producer. And we help people get their stories out to the world. And I tell you, there is nothing more rewarding. For me, when I started finally telling my story and heard people saying that it had helped them in some way, it made me feel as though everything I'd been through was worth it. And it is because I get to help now. I finally went from this little girl lying amongst the cow patties in the meadow, wanting to meet people, wanting to somehow help and be a contribution in this world and, and get to know people I wasn't related to by blood. Here I am and I get to do this and I just had to endure the fire first. Well, I'm not alone. We've all had to endure the fire in some way. And I find that sharing our stories liberates us, but it also liberates the gift that we have to give away. If we can just learn to articulate it in that way, we're set free and the gift just keeps giving. That is so, so beautiful. And I really believe that stories change the world. So I know for a fact, and I'm sure that you feel in your own soul, how helpful and meaningful and world shifting the work is that you're doing. And with this collective, that, that sense of not aloneness is so big and so healing for so many people. I wonder if you would leave us with a message for someone who's feeling alone right now, whether they've been through a, a sexual assault or, or maybe they're grieving the changes in their lives because of the pandemic. Because I know one of your big messages is that we all go through hardship and we're united in that. I think one of the most common experiences for human beings is the experience that I'm alone in this whatever the this is, you can fill in the blank. And when we have that experience, we suffer in silence. And when we suffer in silence, it perpetuates the suffering. Dr. Phil said, when the two of us met, he said, monsters live in the dark. 
And I was like, wow, that's so deep. They do. Those monsters that perpetuate, those monsters that are characterized by the negativity inside of our own head, that lives in the dark. Once we share, even if it's just to a beloved friend or family member or counselor or whomever, and say, I feel like this. I've experienced this. This happened to me. We're no longer alone. And if the people you originally tell don't listen, move on. They're the wrong people. It's not you. That's them. Keep telling. Keep talking until you get the relief. If there's one thing I've learned, it's that sharing, like authentically sharing, not like trauma sharing, but sharing our hearts and souls and stories unites us in a way that nothing else can. And it's important to listen to other stories as well. I tell you, August, in listening to your stories, I've thought, oh, I thought I was the only one who's dealt with that. Like things that, you know, about periods and stuff like that. Oh my God, I thought that was my own private hell. Wait, that's not? It's funny. I'm a grown ass woman and I didn't know that. Some of the things I've learned from listening to you, it's, we have to listen to stories and share stories and, and, and it's what connects us. I mean, since time immemorial, we've sat around the proverbial campfire, painted on cave walls and and, and stories are how we learn. They're how we cope. They're how we heal. And if we can turn to one another and share what we're dealing with, what we're grieving, what we're challenged by and not share it to drive up the trauma. Well, you think that's bad. Let me tell you how bad mine is. No, listen, provide that grace. We can all cumulatively rise See that? Even if you have been feeling pretty alone, you are not as alone as you think. By far, probably. No matter what you're going through or have endured. If you heard Cheryl's story and felt like she was speaking to you, she was. You are why she is so vocal about her journey. And she and everyone on my team here are sending you so much love. To see Cheryl Hunter on TV next week... Watch Dr. Phil on September 3rd. To sign up for her masterclass on getting featured in major media, use the link down in the show notes. And stay tuned to her Instagram account for more updates, at Hunter Cheryl. Now on to this week's listener question, which came in through my latest email list survey. What's the best way for someone who hasn't dated in a long time to get back into dating? Here are five strategies from dating empowerment coach, Erin Tillman. It can totally be nerve wracking to jump back into the dating scene. And where do you even begin? Well, here's a few tips for those of you who are just trying to get back into dating. Number one, dating apps and dating sites. So, you know, back in the day, there used to be so much stigma attached to dating sites. You know, it was like, oh, that couple is friends of mine. They met on a dating site. Oh my God. Or... Can you believe that person's on a dating site? Well, that is no more. It's now 2020. We're in a pandemic. Okay, so first of all, we're not out and about like we used to be. And for some of us, some of us, you know, out there haven't been into clubs and bars and, you know, certain things like that anyway. So a dating site is a really great way to meet somebody outside of your normal social circles. Number two, friends. Friends are a great way to meet new people. Friends in your city, friends in other cities, friends internationally, friends at work. These are all really great ways to meet new people, again, outside of your social circle. You know, your friends hopefully will have your best interests at heart when setting you up potentially with somebody or introducing you to somebody that they're friends with. It could be a really great way to meet somebody new. Number three, social groups and meetup groups. Now, this can be a little trickier because of COVID, but a lot of groups are still doing online discussion groups, screenings of movies, all kinds of things virtually. So those are another way to meet people outside of your social circles who also have similar interests as you. Number four, virtual speed dating and singles events. Again, because of COVID, that's put a wrench in a lot of our activities that we used to do. 
but a lot of dating app companies are putting together virtual dating events. These are great because usually there's a fixed amount of time, so it's not loosey-goosey, like you end up spending your whole evening talking to somebody. It's usually like a fixed amount of time to meet different people virtually. There's usually a host involved. Sometimes there's a small fee involved as well, but these are really great to meet a bunch of new people in a fixed amount of time. So check those out on your favorite dating apps. Number five, matchmaking agencies. So matchmaking agencies are great if you have a big budget. If you have the means, if you have a decent amount of money, this could be a great option for you too. Basically how a matchmaker works is they act as your dating agent, so to speak. You call them up, they ask you questions about who you are, what you're looking for, and all the things about what kind of relationship you're looking for. And then out of their database, they'll look through the people already signed up and match you with somebody who they think you would be great with. The catch, so to speak, is that it can be very pricey from hundreds of dollars to thousands of dollars. But a lot of times you are being fixed up with people who really, really are close to what you're looking for. So that's another great option too. And again, in the era of COVID, do whatever you can to make the most out of this scenario of, you know, not being able to meet everybody in person like we were pre-COVID. And there you have it. Some ideas for those of you who are newly single, newly out on the dating scene. Yes, yes, we are in a bizarre time in the world, in history, but that doesn't mean that you still can't meet somebody. It might be virtual. It could be in person, but definitely if there's one thing you remember from this, try to make it fun. We put so much pressure on ourselves when it comes to dating in the dating scene of finding the one and we sap and suck all of the fun out of this process. Just remember everything you're going to do with these new people is supposed to be fun, have fun with it. And if it ends up being something great, and if it doesn't end up being something, that's okay. Because guess what? You're weeding through all the people who aren't made for you and you will find the person or the people who are great for you. So have fun out there and good luck. Thanks so much, Erin, for that great advice and for sharing your wisdom with us all throughout this month. I personally think her recent segment on dealing with anxiety or insecurity in the dating realm could pair really well with this week's tips. And I didn't know that you could do speed dating online. That's very cool. To learn much more from Erin, subscribe to the Dating Advice Girl podcast on your favorite podcast app or visit thedatingadvicegirl.com. If you have a question for me or for sex and relationship therapist Dr. Megan Fleming, who will return starting next week, drop us a note at girlboner.org or using the link down in the show notes. And if this episode struck you, please share it with a friend or two who might benefit. Ratings and reviews are also very appreciated. This episode was hosted and produced by me, August McLaughlin, with audio management by Mackenzie Mazel, the founder and organizer of the Period Podcast Network. KM Huber provided transcript support. Thanks so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.